From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. There's never been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament. There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Solik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. So there we go. The first broadcast interview, was it, from the Prime Minister since the election and quite a wide ranging one as well on the BBC this morning. There's so much to dig into, uh, everything from Huawei to the forthcoming EU talks to Iran to the bells of Big Ben. Which are absolutely crucial, of course. I saw a rather nice suggestion on Twitter that Boris Johnson himself could be the, you know... The, the, the bell. Cla- the, well, the, the, the thing that hits the bell, whatever they call it, the clap. The mallet. Something like that, yes. Mallet Johnson. Mm. Sounds like a wrestler from the 80s. I love it. Let's roll with that. Well, I tell you what, let's bring in our Brexit editor, Edward Evans, who as always is here with us in the studio, uh, bringing his knowledge with him. I want to get right into the core of your beat and talk about fisheries, because this is one of the things that we've heard from Brussels, that they want fisheries to be part of this first stage deal. Why is it so important for them? It's a precondition for getting to the trade deal. So it's before you even get to the trade right. deal, the EU wants to get a deal on fishing. This is an industry that is tiny in economic terms, but of huge political importance uh, on both sides of the English Channel, in France and in the UK. Now, the grievance in England has been that EU boats, according to campaigners, take seven times more fish out of UK waters than British boats do out of EU waters. And in those circumstances, you can see why the French and the Spanish are very keen to protect their domestic fishing industries. Of course, they are now in, you know, with the trade negotiations space. It's now their moment to exploit that because if Boris Johnson wants to get a deal on services, where of course Britain is a net exporter of to the EU, um, this is the moment where the EU has the point of maximum leverage. Well, yeah, on that point, I mean, what is the wiggle room on this? Because the EU Commission statement came out very bald. We want just basically as it is, same as per. Boris Johnson's been on record as telling von der Leyen last week. We want to take back our, our fisheries. So well, for the beginning, they're at poles apart. They are a beginning at poles apart. But this is how all trade negotiations start. Both sides are poles apart. Uh, and one side or other, both sides may have to give some ground on this in some way. Now, for Johnson, it is a much, it's a small industry, but it's politically highly sensitive in parts of the Conservative Party. Uh, but equally, you know, the, state, the, the, the industry has existed with the status quo and any deal would merely be an extension of the status quo as it is. So that would lean to making it easier for Johnson to give way on that, especially if he can get a tie it to some kind of deal on services. It's very hard to see uh, how if the EU 
how the EU doesn't hold all the cards here, really. But at the same time, Johnson's really come out with strong rhetoric on this one. He said, we will be taking back control of our fishing waters. Doesn't that give him very little wiggle room? Well, he also said he would get Britain out of the EU do it or die in a ditch <laughs> on a particular date. <laughs> I mean, empty ditches. There are, yes. there, the, the ditch was empty. There, you know, there are all, Things are said at the start of negotiations that bear no relation to the final negotiating position. And in the end, of course, given the majority that he has, we come back to this point again and again, he can afford to displease some of his own party. Yeah, exactly. So that won't, that won't be a problem, potentially. That makes sense. All right, what about Huawei then? So Johnson hinting that he won't ban Huawei from the UK 5G network. This is, of course, an issue that's run for a long time. Theresa May managed not to end up making a decision on it. Uh, of course, the US isn't particularly keen on this. How damaging could that be for the special relationship if he does go ahead and allow some Huawei technology? Highly. The key point here is intelligence. Don't forget the UK is part of the five, one of the Five Eyes intelligence-sharing nations. Uh, New Zealand, Australia and the US have all effectively banned Huawei from their telecoms networks, effectively on national security grounds. And really, Canada and the UK are the only two who haven't followed so far. The concern is, of course, if you let Huawei into the 3G network, it could be uh, used by the Chinese. Chinese government to spy on everybody else. The problem they've got that Johnson's got and why Theresa May was so keen to kick the can down the road on this is that if you exclude Huawei, it, you delay the rollout of the 5G network here. So he's in a terrible position of he can't, you know, he's got his biggest ally on one side saying, don't do it. He's got the national, in, you've got companies in the UK saying we need 5G now and we need Huawei to roll that out. Where do, where do you fall down? It's going to be a very difficult one to, for him to manage. And an interesting one in the way, it, it, almost philosophically, because what you've got is he, he wants to move Britain, in a sense, closer, uh, further off from Europe and closer towards America on many issues. And this is perhaps a test case, because if he doesn't do what the Americans want, begins to exclude himself from their intelligence community, potentially the whole embrace of America yes. would be at risk. It's Indeed. It, yeah, that is the key relationship that he needs to keep warm after Brexit. Um, and if he does anything to prejudice it, and be very clear that the, the US are very clear on this, that they they regard Huawei as a security threat. They have used it as a, as a weapon in the trade negotiations with China. They do not want him to do, to do it to allow Huawei. It's hard to see what the benefit is from the European side if he does do a deal, what he would get in get in return from the EU side if he, if he did let them in. So how urgent is it? Could he, in theory, just wait until November, pray that Trump leaves the White House and then be free to make a decision? He may not. Ha he may have to make a decision sooner than that. I mean, this has already been kicked down the road, and mm. the U.S. seem to think it's it, it's a decision is imminent. And in an ideal world, of course, that be what you would do, and uh, the, the creative inertia would be the the best path for him at this point. Because it all feeds into a general position that Boris Johnson has these attitudes towards Europe, towards America, but in terms of a wider British foreign policy, the idea of Brexit, I suppose, being that Britain has its own foreign policy in a more definite way. It's a bit of a test at the moment. There's lots of issues, not least Iran. Yeah, and it's it, we're at the moment where we're breaking. Britain is breaking away from the EU. How does it frame foreign policy in that environment? And it's caught between two stools. And this is what's going to become very rapidly apparent over coming months. On so one side, you've got the US saying you, you will not have Huawei. On the other side, you've got the EU saying you need to give us your fishing waters. It's very hard to see what leverage he has in those circumstances. But what he's got now is that is the that is how the the the, the operation has changed. And also, within, within the area of Iran, we've got the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement, which America has left. They're not keen on it. Europe is very much at the key point 
of being the main supporter of what, what's left of this nuclear treaty with Iran. And now the prospect of Iran potentially getting having, having its own diplomatic dispute with Britain, prospect of the British ambassador who was arrested at a, uh, well, a vigil that turned into a demonstration over the downing of the Ukrainian airliner, uh, and a request by the judiciary in Tehran to make him persona non grata, in effect, to expel him, not confirmed as yet. This is going to be an even bigger test, because how on earth do you keep maintaining a nuclear deal with a country that you don't really get on with? The other side of the Atlantic wants you to lose it altogether, and now you've got a diplomatic dispute. If you can't have full diplomatic relations, if you can't have your your man in Tehran in Tehran, you know, how do you do it? Indeed, it's very hard to see. And what about the, the Iran deal? Because, I mean, it's clear that President Trump didn't like it because Obama enacted it. And now we're seeing the shift, as we've been talking about, towards more U.S. foreign policy. Is the incentive there to encourage a Trump-Iran deal just because it has the Trump name on it? Well, that was Johnson's clear message in his interview with the BBC today. You know, put a, He's the great deal maker. He could put a nuclear deal in the table, put Trump's name on it. This is an old call. He's made it. Before. Johnson has made that call before, I think, back in September. So it's not yeah, this isn't a new call, a new pressure that he's facing in that sense. Uh, and what about the European attitude in all this? Because in the past, it has been led by a kind of European foreign policy uh, on this. Um, in, the, in the sense, you know, d d is Europe that concerned that outside, Bre that, that after Brexit, Britain will be acting as a kind of independent player that could mess up a lot of these arrangements, which Britain has been within before? It's difficult, but it's difficult to see what influence Europe has in the region anyway. And do, does Britain, how does Britain's divorce from Europe affect that? And I think particularly Iran is particular example where you can see you know, this is really about the US-Iran relationship and the European the Europeans in this are really bystanders and the UK all the more so. And then we had this line just a few minutes ago uh, from the government uh, around Scotland and saying that they were again going to block this vote. We've got noises from the SNP as well. Uh, so it seems that there's another attempt there at some form of independence vote or a move towards an independence vote. Um, how long can Boris Johnson stall that? As long as he wants to, because he need the, Sturgeon needs Parliament's permission in Westminster to hold a a referendum. So in practical terms, Johnson can stall this off for, for as long as he likes. In political terms, it may, it's hard to resist that pressure. But remember, if you go back to the 2014 referendum, both sides said at the time this was a this was a decision for a generation. And this, that was that was what was said at the time. And that's how Johnson's responded today. Again, it shows you just how much, how Brexit has opened up the can of worms that is the the, U, the state of the UK right now. Does Scotland, you know, Scotland pressure for Scotland to move is not going to go away. Equally, pressure for Northern Ireland to move off from the UK isn't going to go away. And it may that the conventional wisdom at the moment seems to be that Scotland is the one that would go first. I would just question that and ask whether actually if Northern Ireland, now we've got the power sharing assembly back, it has an exit door that it can push itself. Border referendum. Exactly. And whether that, you know, that could go for, whether does that go before Scotland? I just question that. And they might, I suppose, the Scots might say, well, if Northern Ireland can have a border referendum, exactly. in effect, without, represent, without reference to Westminster. Why can't we? And that would be a very difficult one to hold. It's hugely it? difficult because Northern Ireland will have a very will have a different relationship to, the, to Europe than the rest of the UK. Yeah, they will be in the customs union for many part for, for, for all intents and purposes. They will have that single market. They will they will have preferential treatment. Now that is not going to go down well north north of the border in Scotland. Mm. If it goes well, particularly because then you say, well, if it works for them and they can have it, why can't we in Edinburgh have it? Could, could you see a Catalonia situation where they start, they have a referendum whether or not Westminster wants it? Uh, well, let's see, let's see what happens on that. It'd be, very, it'd be a, a brave politician to do that. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we've got the biggie. Big Ben will not bong for Brexit. The House of Commons Commission dismissing the idea of ringing the bell at 11pm on January the 31st, citing financial and logistical issues, projected projected costs, this is important, in the region of half a million pounds. So a big argument against doing that, which many really, really want. Boris Johnson hinting, though, at a public crowdfunding campaign this morning. And Conservative MP Marc Francois, who led the call for Big Ben to bong, suggesting a recording could be played instead. Now, this this story is close to my heart. College Green Media. Now, news organisations could be banned from broadcasting on College Green outside Parliament. Now, I have stood in the cold and wet myself there uh, for this programme, in fact, on many occasions. But the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, has expressed fears that that whole green area covered with tents and uh, microphones and cameras is becoming a security risk. For years, TV stations have set up camp opposite the House of Lords to provide live coverage of politics, often erecting temporary studios during major events such as general elections. But Lindsay Hoyle is poised to withdraw permission for TV crews to use the patch of land, which belongs to the parliamentary estate, after it became a magnet for protesters craving attention. And boy, it did. But of course, if they get rid of TV, they can always have radio down there. Oh yeah, why not? You can't see the protesters. You can just hear them shouting. I tell you, you get some really, really special specimens of the British people <laughs> landing in college. Choose your words carefully. Not so. just the journalists. Anyway, here's another one for you. I don't know if you saw last week BuzzFeed running the story on a new Tory MP getting himself into a bit of trouble, Jamie Wallace. Uh, it said that he promoted a sugar daddy website on his own company's website. Uh, Wallace claimed he was unaware of the service. Uh, it offered students financial relationships with wealthy sponsors. Um, and he said it had no financial relationship with its owner. BuzzFeed now reporting that he co-owned it, citing company's house filing. So the plot thickens and the Labour leadership contender Jess Phillips has got involved. She's calling on the Tories to withdraw the whip from Wallace. It would be a very, very short tenure if that did happen. And finally, something from the Yorkshire Post, which is rather apposite for our next guest. Uh, The headline of the Yorkshire Post, Labour Party must listen to region with leadership hustings in Yorkshire. Over the weekend, the paper says several Labour MPs in the region expressed their anger. The party was seemingly going to swerve Yorkshire as one of the locations for the leadership hustings after a list of planned venues was published online. The party indicated yesterday there will in fact be an event here but only hours after Sakia Starmer had joined calls for hustings in every region of the country. It doesn't bode well the paper says for Labour's attempts to regain lost Yorkshire voters that local MPs and even leadership candidates were seemingly unaware of the plans for a Yorkshire event until the public outcry forced a clarification. However wherever and whenever an event is held in Yorkshire it represents a vital opportunity to hear from the candidates, campaigners and Labour members who experienced firsthand the opprobrium of 
drive many voters towards their party, it's time to listen and truly change. Some solid regional lobbying there, isn't it? Right, let's bring you up to speed with this then. The Labour contest uh, for the leadership. Uh, wrapping up the first stage, the nominations phase, we've got five contenders. We have the shadow Brexit secretary, Keir Starmer. He got 88 nominations. Then Rebecca Long-Bailey, Lisa Nandy, Jess Phillips and Emily Thornbury. Clive Lewis, out. He was uh, he withdrew his uh, his candidacy. And then we've also got the deputy le- leadership contest going in tandem. Angela Rayner, Ian Murray, Dawn Butler, Rosanna Aline Khan and Richard Bergen. So plenty of names to get yourself familiar with. Incidentally, there's a very good Bloomberg write up on these if you don't know them. Uh, but let's get right into this. I'm pleased to say we're now joined by Sienna Rogers, who is the editor of Labour List. Uh, Sienna, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, thanks. Uh, so I want to start off with this piece in the Huffington Post written by Paul War. Uh, he makes the argument that Lisa Nandy can sort of sneak in there using the preferential strategy, uh, bearing in mind that this is the preferential vote system. So you uh, you nominate in order of preference your candidates. So she can sort of hoover up the second preference votes and win that way. How likely do you think that is to work for her? Well, yes, so it was an excellent article by Paul War, And uh, as, as you say, he argues that Lisa Nandy's strategy is really focusing on second preferences. I think the problem with that strategy is that, I mean, it makes sense in that she's from the soft left of the party. She's a bit of, sort of vanilla candidate, if you like. Um, and she so far hasn't taken any particularly strident positions on specific policies. She's kind of said you know, the labour movement needs to change, uh, needs to shift direction, or or it will die and it will deserve to die. Um, that's kind of what her pitch was laid out as uh, yesterday when she was talking in Dagenham. The problem is that Keir Starmer really comes from the same area of the party, and he's going to get lots of sec- first preferences, but he could also get lots of second preferences. I mean, you might not think it likely, because they are from different parts of the party, but for instance, I know, you know, Rebecca Long-Bailey supporters who would book Keir Starmer as their second preference as well, because I think the Labour membership is not actually as deeply factional as you might assume, because there are half a million members after all. And in many ways, they're just like the ordinary voter, just a bit more left wing. That's an interesting take, CN. I think uh, the Labour Party membership is, is quite a strange thing in a way, because it's, it is huge uh, because yeah. of the, uh, the system that was put in place of very cheap membership. I think it may still be the largest uh, political organisation, uh, in, certainly in Western Europe. But doesn't that mean that the people who, who joined um, probably are the true believers, more likely, in fact, to back uh, Corbyn line candidates than perhaps the MPs or even maybe the unions? I think Labour membership, it's a funny thing because I reckon if John McDonnell, for instance, had chosen to run in this leadership contest, as, as some people actually thought he might do as a year ago or even a few months ago, I think Labour membership would really go for him. They love the way that he's very straight talking. He deals with the media very well, but he still has that left left wing sort of commitment to those policies that Corbyn advocated. And I think they would love that. But I think the same membership could go for someone like Keir Starmer, who's definitely not in the same place as Jeremy Corbyn. So I think it's that interesting dynamic whereby they are left wing, but they also they really want to win an election. They want to see Labour win the next election and they want to choose someone who is seen as competent. I think in 2016, the really really important dynamic there was that it, it looked as if Jeremy Corbyn was under attack and they basically didn't want to be mean. And they felt as if Owen Smith's challenge was unfair and he hadn't been given enough time yet. And I think that was 
really crucial to the outcome of that race. And what about entries in this time round? Because in 2015, it was a big part of the dynamic. We had these £3 supporters. They're now £25 supporters. Who could they favour and how much impact do you think they'll have? Yes, so today, this afternoon, the registered supporters window opens. It's only open for 48 hours and it does cost £25. And that's exactly the same as it was used in 2016. But this time round, it's expected that Corbyn sceptic candidates are the ones who would benefit from new sign-ups, such as Jess Phillips. She has been putting a lot of Facebook ads out there. She obviously wants her supporters, people who've maybe read her book, to join the party or sign up as a registered supporter or affiliate member so they could vote. And she needs a bit of change in the membership and the selectorate in order to have any chance of winning. But I think the interesting thing is that actually registered supporters just don't matter as much this time because until Monday, people can sign up as full members and they will have voting rights just like any other member. So it doesn't matter that scheme quite as much as it did back in 2016. Now, Sienna, it's interesting. In this entire conversation, we've barely mentioned the person who was seen really as uh, as the front runner bef- even before the contest was announced, but has now seemed to go into the background. I'm talking about Rebecca Long Bailey. Uh, is her campaign running out of steam? Do you think? Well, I, I wrote an article before this really all got started, saying you know this isn't all about Rebecca Long Bailey. Actually, the field is wide open. We had a survey that showed that level support for leadership candidates was really quite low across the board, showing that any candidate could come through pretty quickly and convince members, and they weren't just already stuck on one candidate. So Keir Starmer has had a very, very well-run campaign, and the truth is that Rebecca Long-Bailey has just had an incredibly slow start. She didn't have a campaign prepared. She didn't have a campaign team in place. She's only just started getting her comms people, getting her campaign director properly in place. That's John Landsman from Momentum. So it was just this really slow start. But I think in the hustings, in the televised debates, that's where we're going to see maybe Rebecca Long-Bailey. She will be hoping to make some progress because the policy positions, really specific things will come out more. Their voting records in Parliament and maybe just highlighting a little bit how the other candidates who might be pitching to the left at the moment are actually quite Corbyn sceptic and not as left wing as members might assume at this point. Well, somebody who we're certainly not talking too much about is Emily Thornberry, who just got the nomination she needed yesterday by the skin of her teeth. The hot take I really want to read is, why is she not doing better? She's a very senior member of the Labour Party. She's held a lot of high-ranking roles, just doesn't really seem to be drawing in the political gravity this time round. Yes, and she's been an MP for the longest of all the leadership candidates. She's been in Parliament since 2005, and none of the others have been here that long. So it was interesting to see that she was really struggling for nominations. And actually, she had to rely on Clive Lewis pulling out of the race just 45 minutes before the deadline yesterday. And she got some of his supporters to tactically nominate her just because they were left-wingers who essentially don't believe in the parliamentary party's veto over who can be on the ballot paper. And it was really that kind of principal position that got her on in the end. I mean, why... Has she not forged those relationships in the parliamentary party? I think some of it, it clearly is about personal relationships. It's about also trade union links. The interesting thing about Lisa Nandy's support base in terms of nominations is that she had a few GMB people, which is looking good for the next stage of the campaign. And it looks like Emily Thornbury just doesn't have those things on her side. And very, very briefly, if you would, Sienna, who's the best place, do you think, for deputy leader now? 
Well, Angela Rayner is far and away the the front runner, both in terms of MP and MEP nominations, but also in terms of name recognition and popularity among members. I think Richard Bergen is going to present an interesting challenge from the left, uh, mm. the, the more pure Corbynite candidate. And then there's also obviously Ian Murray, who will get the core Corbyn sceptic vote. But I think we can say that Rayner will remain the front runner for some time now. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.